Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for giving us this season of Lent to explore and examine our hearts, to search you out in the bright sadness and to be met by your presence and your words. Lord, open our hearts now to this reading from your gospel. Open us now to your vision from the Sermon on the Mount that we might become a people transformed more and more into your likeness. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with you this morning, Emmanuel. My name is John Perrine. For any of you who didn't meet me last fall, I am currently the pastoral resident at Church of the Resurrection with the hope of church planting myself in the next couple of years. So it's wonderful to be with you. It's wonderful to be worshiping with you. And I'm so thankful to be bringing you a word in this series you've been in of waking up, becoming fully human, exploring the Sermon on the Mount and hearing how Jesus is inviting us into this vision of what life looks like becoming fully human. So this morning, we're going to engage an intense and necessary conversation that Jesus himself starts around criticism. How do we engage the personal and institutional shortcomings that surround us? As you look out at the world, as you look out at your own life, likely this conversation is going to stir up criticism you've received, criticism at work, maybe criticism from a friend maybe criticism that has been helpful or criticism that has been hurtful. This conversation also is going to stir up the institutional complexities we see surrounding us that hold this tension that we both see desperately need to be critiqued, and yet that we also just seem to hear this growing cacophony of noise. The more and more time we spend on social media, Facebook, whatever else, the more and more critiques, the more and more angry, the more and more frustrated, and yet the less and less seems to be getting done. So how do we engage criticism on a personal and institutional level. Turn with me to your bulletin, or if you have your Bible, open it to Matthew 7. Thankfully, Jesus is going to dive into this headfirst in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look with me at verse 1, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In our text, we're going to find... Jesus giving advice, or more specifically, Jesus giving warnings to the critic. Three warnings that Jesus is going to give to the critic before Jesus gives three invitations to us and how to engage criticism. So this first warning is about the log and the speck, right? This almost strange, comical image Jesus chooses to use about having this massive log of wood sitting in your own eye so that you can't even see this speck this small, tiny particle of dust that's sitting in your neighbor's eye. When Jesus engages this, uh, it really made me think of this video I stumbled across recently by this company called Soul Pancake. I don't know if any of you have seen Soul Pancake videos. They're meant to be thought-provoking, creative media. And in this video, Soul Pancake brought in just a random assortment of people, all who identified as being single. So they weren't currently seeing anyone in a relationship. Soul Pancake first started with the question to all these individuals, would you like to be in a relationship? All these, this random uh, assortment of single people. And surprisingly, Soul Pancake found that every single one of them said yes. 
Every single person said, yes, I want to be in a relationship. Soul Pancake thought this was so strange. They kind of brought in the search. They sent out an anonymous survey to about 100 people. And again, all 100 people who were single responded positively, yes, I want to be in a relationship. So Soul Pancake asked these informants what it was they were looking for in a relationship. So the participants responded with things like companionship, honesty, friendliness, or my favorite one was someone who I can just grab pancakes with at IHOP at two in the morning. Isn't that nice? Wouldn't you just love someone you can grab pancakes with at IHOP at two in the morning? And yet when the uh, interviewer asked all of these participants what they assumed others were looking for in a relationship, what is, what is everyone else looking for? The tune drastically started to change. Every single one of these participants started to respond, well, probably a one-night stand, probably money, probably sex, maybe arm candy. This led the interviewer to conclude with a thought-provoking insight that I think gets right at the heart of what Jesus is saying. The interviewer said, we're all looking for the same great qualities, but we think we're the only ones who is. Unless we were lucky enough that every participant we had was the saint of their social circle, something just isn't adding up. Something's just not adding up. We can become so fixated on ourselves, on what we're looking for, on what we're desiring, on what we see, how we think the world should be right and ordered and well, that we start to assume everyone else around us is doing it wrong. Everyone else has this terrible speck that we just need to get rid of. If only we can swat it away. My wife and I found that as we have wrestled with this reality of being critical, this warning around the log and the speck, uh, we started to realize we have our own critical ritual when it comes to going to the movies. Maybe this will relate to some of you, but we really do three things every time we go to a movie. First, we have to start with the Rotten Tomato score, right? You just have to start with Rotten Tomato. You check what the critics are saying. You get a feel, a pulse. Okay, critics are on board, or the critics, they already say this is going to be terrible. Then, when we go to the movie, my wife and I always sit there in the dark right before the movie begins. We'll look at each other and say, what do you think this one's going to be? What, what would you give it? Probably a, a four out of 10, maybe a six. Uh, you know, it's, it's a Marvel movie. Maybe we can go all the way up to seven. Might be a nice time. So we sit there and we come up with our number. And then as soon as the movie's over, as soon as we get into the car, we dive in to our critique. Inevitably, well, this was really good, but I didn't love this. Well, the acting was pretty strong, but the storyline was weak. There was that one scene that kind of moved me but I wasn't really that interested when they took that turn and the story kind of got worse. In a matter of about 20 minutes, my wife and I find that we have criticized, we've deconstructed, we've torn apart a film that has probably taken anywhere from nine months to three years to create, right? We, we love being the critic. In fact, my guess for you is that this, this appeal of critiquing things gets so strong that it almost becomes like a drug. We start to find that the more we criticize, the more we want to criticize, because criticizing feels good, right? It feels good to point out that your air conditioner isn't as strong as it should be. The air is not as cool in your house. It feels good to point out when the bus is late, right? It feels good to point out when someone else isn't sitting quietly like they should be on CTA, right? It feels good to kind of build this critical approach to the world. And yet, my wife and I, as we were kind of reflecting on our own role as critics, stumbled across this scene in the movie Birdman that came out a couple years ago, starring Michael Keaton, 
won Best Picture. For any of you who didn't see it, it's about this aging actor who finds himself trying to revitalize his career. And so he starts a Broadway show. And yet he knows the critics are going to come. Because he's an actor, because he's a film actor, the critics are just going to tear his show apart. And he has a scene where he confronts the critic, confronts the critic in the room. I'd love to read this for you. He sees what the critic wrote down, and in just this furious tirade, Michael Keaton's character shouts out, lackluster, marginality, that's just labels. You just label everything. That's so lazy. You don't know what something is if you can't label it. You write a couple of paragraphs, and you know what? None of this costs you anything, anything. You risk nothing, nothing. I'm the actor, and this play costs me everything, while you sit around and write your crappy opinions backed by even crappier comparisons. The warning that Jesus offers us with the log and the speck is to be careful lest we get cocky in our criticism. Be careful lest you get cocky because the likelihood is you are probably sitting with the log in your own eye even while you're fixated on that speck in another. That's the first warning with the log and the speck. Look with me back at the text. We keep going in Jesus' warning. And the second warning I want to call the pearl and the pigs. We've got the log and the speck. Next we have the pearl and the pigs. Verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So I've been sitting with this text. This is a strange text. Most commentators get a little confused. Like, what's Jesus doing here? But I've really been wrestling. How does Jesus move from a log and a speck to pearl and the pigs? I can't help but wonder if the pearl and the pigs isn't about those of us who have been so bombarded by criticism, who have entrusted something holy, something sacred about ourselves to critics we never should have trusted. And in so doing, find these very precious, holy, sacred gifts that we have trampled under the foot of the pigs. If the first warning of Jesus is to not get cocky in our criticism because it doesn't cost us anything, the second warning of Jesus is don't be crushed by those who shouldn't be trusted with your pearls. Don't be crushed by those who shouldn't be trusted with what is sacred. I find in this progression of Jesus, this haunting refrain of those of us who become so critical, we can't see anything in the world around us. And yet those of us who have been so criticized that we're literally trampled by those who could never appreciate, never value that which shouldn't have been given to them. Have you entrusted your pearls before pigs? Uh, as I was thinking about a time when this maybe was true in my life, I went back to being 14 years old. And at 14, uh, actually, I happen to have my buddy from high school here who's visiting from out of town, which is really fun. He can attest to you. I had kind of long hair. I was trying the guitar, like most 14-year-olds do. And I was very proud because I had learned a song, a pop song, that I was boldly going to play. So I was practicing, I was practiced it, felt like I was really mastering it. And with bravado, I walked into my 18-year-old sister's room kind of flicked my hair back and strummed the guitar and said, check this out, and then played my heart out before her, unwanted, unasked, of course. And my sister's response, as any good sister should do, said to me, I don't think any girl will ever want to hear that song, <laughs> least of all me, least of all me. So clearly pearls before pigs, right? <laughs> clearly pearls before pigs. 
And yet as I sit with that moment, I can't help but wonder for you what those pearls might have been. I can't help but wonder for you what those sacred gifts, what those sacred talents, what those sacred questions, even moments before God were that you entrusted to someone who wasn't capable of handling this precious gift that you had. Jesus, in his second warning of the pearl and the pig, says, don't be crushed by those who shouldn't be entrusted with your criticism. Thirdly, the bread and the stones. Let's look back at the passage. Look with me at verses 7 to 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? So what's the warning here in this third image of bread and stones from Jesus? Well, on the surface, this this invitation seems quite positive. It seems like there's a lot of good things going on. And yet, for those of us who have been around criticism long enough, for those of us who have gotten hooked on this drug of critique, I think as we hear Jesus' invitation, just ask and God will give, we find ourselves veering towards the route of the cynic. The cynic who says, really? Really? All fathers always give loaves instead of stones? Really? I haven't seen that. What about fish? Really? All fathers give fish? The, The cynic is the one who has looked at the world and has realized that there's no one to be trusted. The cynic is the one who looks at the world and realizes that all of the hopes, ideals, or dreams that they had for the world simply aren't going to take place for anyone. So they might as well make it work with what they can do. As I was wrestling with the cynic, I was wrestling with this underlying haunting image of a person who would be so hurt, so wounded, that they wouldn't even trust a father to give their child a loaf of bread. I was drawn to this quote by Ernest Hemingway, just wrestling with how is it that someone, someone who could start so innocent, so joy-filled, with so much potential, could find themselves so cynical and broken. Ernest Hemingway said this, the best people possess a feeling for beauty, the courage to take risks, the discipline to tell the truth, the capacity for sacrifice. Ironically, these best people, their virtue makes them vulnerable They are often wounded, sometimes destroyed. Isn't that so true that the cynic is not necessarily someone who sets out to be evil, who sets out to be a a cynic in the world, but the cynic is the one who started with an ideal, started with a dream, who started with a hope, and has instead found themselves so crushed, so surrounded, who's found so many pearls trampled, under the feet of pigs, that they no longer can see that hope or beauty in the world around them. I wonder for you if the struggle with the cynic, the struggle with even this invitation to ask a father who claims to be good is something that sort of lingers and haunts your own heart. As I was was wrestling with these three warnings, don't be cocky, don't be crushed, don't be a cynic, so I was wrestling with it in my own life. I started to realize um, probably about nine months ago, I had found myself falling into the path of the critic. The critic was, was growing 
within me. And specifically, it was around a relationship with my family. My family, about five years ago, had some immense catastrophic breakups. It kind of pushed everyone apart. I had moved away. My family's all in Arizona. And as I was trying to sort through the pieces, sift through the rubble of this pain and suffering, much like Hemingway talks about, I found inside this just growing disappointment, this growing even resentment to all of the the problems I saw, all of the ways that siblings, parents had let me down. I started to find building in me this growing attitude that said, maybe if they just sort themselves out, maybe if they just fix their ways, maybe if they just finally address all of these issues, all these problems that, that have gotten in the way of our relationship, maybe then we can finally pick this thing back up, go at it again. I think as I reflect on that season, we are all profoundly susceptible to finding ourselves in the role of the critic. We are all profoundly susceptible to failing in these warnings that Jesus offers us, to avoid being cocky, to avoid being crushed, to avoid becoming even cynical, to the point that I, I wasn't really convinced the relationship with my family was going to happen, that maybe we all just were going to drift slowly out to sea. And so as you are listening to this today, I wonder for you where criticism is sitting most heavy on your heart. Is it personal critique? Is there someone out there who has said something that's really gotten under your skin? Or maybe is it someone that you just can't stop thinking about, who's driving you crazy? You just can't stop seeing these, these flaws, this brokenness, this frustration that builds inside you. Or maybe for you, this is a very institutional reality. Maybe for you, you have seen and felt the overwhelming forces of evil in the world. You see it, you you see it so clearly, and it feels like all you can do is just keep naming it. Like if we just keep saying it over and over and over again, where the flaws are, where the holes are, the things that need to be corrected, then maybe somehow you can fight off this growing cynicism that's threatening. As I hold both of those tensions, these profound realities of the personal and institutional critiques, that sit around us, that that are necessary to engage, where do we turn? Where is it that we look when we try to hold this invitation of Jesus into criticism? Well, I think Jesus gives us three warnings, or three invitations in response to his three warnings, but it all pivots with this next verse we're going to find in verse 12. Look with me. Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I find this so beautiful. Of course, you've heard the golden rule before. Of course, this rule has fascinated our society. It's fascinated other cultures and religions as well because it's so profoundly disarming in how it invites us to engage the threats of criticism around us. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think Jesus here is turning the vision of criticism. He's shifting the boat. He's turning away from this building tide, this mounting pressure of more and more critique that causes more and more danger, that can crush more and more souls, and that ultimately ends in this cynical posture towards God and all of reality. And instead, Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or another way of saying it, reclaim responsibility. Reclaim responsibility for your role in criticism. Now, let me, let me take us back to this passage briefly and look at how Jesus has actually been inviting us all along to reclaim responsibility, first for ourselves, then for the sacred, and then for our skepticism. 
Let's talk about reclaiming responsibility for yourself. Look with me at verse five. There, in Jesus' first warning to not get cocky about the log and the speck, we find in verse five this clear invitation. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think here Jesus is inviting us into reclaiming responsibility for yourself. Reclaim responsibility for yourself. There was a psychologist, a Canadian psychologist, who would do an experiment with his classroom where he would have students come in, 20-somethings, and he would start by asking them, what's something you want to see changed in the world? And students would offer all kinds of responses, lots that you would expect. We want to fight poverty. We want to end global hunger. We want to seek racial healing and reconciliation. We want to fight injustice, corruption in cities. And the psychologist would go, great, this is wonderful. So glad to hear about all these things you want to change. Let me ask you another question. How many of you make your bed in the morning? And he, he would stop and he'd look, he'd pull the room. And sure enough, college students on average, he would say in his classrooms, had about 30% that would say that they every day make their bed in the morning. So he'd go, okay, that's great, 30%. How many of you clean your room every day? Clean your room every day. Inevitably, most of the hands at this point would go down. And so the psychologist would invite his class to do an experiment with him. He'd say, for the next 30 days, I want to invite you to make your bed and clean your room every morning. Make your bed, clean your room. Start small, see what happens. Start small and see what happens. Inevitably, the most fascinating stories would start coming back to him over the course of these 30 days. Students would start reporting that because they cleaned their room, they started paying attention to what they ate a little more. A few students said, I, you know, I always wanted to lose weight. I've actually found myself starting to lose weight. And other students said they started to work out. They would get up in the morning, they'd clean their room, and then next thing they know, they'd say, I've got, got a little space, a little momentum, maybe I'll go to the gym. Other students, and this totally makes sense to me as someone who lived with a messy room for a long time, found that homework was suddenly far easier to do when you walk into a clean room than walk into a chaotic disaster, right? And as the psychologist reflected on what he learned from doing this experiment over and over and over again, is that he said, cleaning your room invites you every time you enter to become slightly better than you currently are. Cleaning your room invites you to become slightly better than you currently are every time you enter it. He wrote this book recently uh, called 12 Rules for Life, and in it he offers in his sixth rule something that sounds very reminiscent to me of Jesus' teaching. It's a rule for life, and it's this. He says, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Now, that's a bold invitation. It's kind of monumental. It's, it's heavy. It's responsible. And yet, as you sit with that invitation, you start to wonder, reading Matthew 7, if Jesus might not have said something similar. Take the log out of your own eye before criticizing the speck in another. Now, I just want to be clear. Of course, there are criticisms that need to be made. Of course, there are. And yet, I love that Jesus' invitation is to start with yourself. It's even starting with something simple like clean your room, see what happens. I wonder for you as you sit with this invitation from Jesus, take the log out of your own eye before seeing the speck in another. What would starting small and simple look like for you? What is something small and simple you could take responsibility for? Maybe it is a personal critique. Maybe you can't handle the whole monumental weight of what someone has levied against you. But maybe there's something small, like cleaning your room, saying hi to your roommate, starting with a, a gentle hello 
to someone who's difficult to encounter? What would starting small look like for you? Or maybe institutionally, what would starting small, practical, simple look like for you? Maybe you're frustrated by these numerous, heavy, weighty issues that need to be criticized. What would it look like for you to reclaim responsibility for your engagement with that issue and to start small and see what happens? Encountering a friendship, reaching out to someone who's across the divide, entering into an unknown or uncomfortable area that you can actually, in your life, engage. What would it look like for you to reclaim responsibility for yourself? Secondly, if we look back at verse 6, I think the second dynamic of Jesus' invitation around reclaiming responsibility is to reclaim responsibility for the sacred. Reclaim responsibility for the sacred. He says in verse 6, Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not give to dogs that which is sacred. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they be trampled. I think here Jesus is inviting us to consider the sacred moments of our life, those, those sacred encounters, perhaps even a story of encountering God when you were young. Or, or having that beautiful transcendent moment that was pointing you towards a relationship with the creator. Maybe it was precious friendships or relationships that have gotten scattered by the winds. What would it look like for you to reclaim responsibility for those sacred moments, those sacred encounters, those sacred longings? Or maybe for some of you, the sacred is actually your creative gifts. It's your passion, it's your intellect, it's your abilities, it's your warmth that's your energy that you bring to the world. And it's so easy as we encounter a critical world to find those sacred gifts we have being trampled underfoot by the critics that surround us. What would it look like for you to reclaim responsibility for those sacred gifts, to protect yourself from those who might trample you underfoot? Third, finally, reclaim responsibility for your skepticism. Reclaim responsibility for your skepticism Look with me at verse 9 again. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What I hear Jesus inviting us into here is a question around who is responsible for our skepticism. Who is responsible for our skepticism? Now, I know I know that skepticism is there for a reason. Skepticism is there to protect us from the pain and suffering that we haven't had answers to. Skepticism is there because it sometimes feels like it's going to hurt far too much for us to actually lean in and ask why, why we're resistant, why that pain is there, why that cynicism has been growing. And yet Jesus, in such a simple and disarming and profound way, gives us a clear invitation in reclaiming responsibility for our skepticism. He says, ask your father who is in heaven. Ask, seek your father who is in heaven. Seek him and you'll find him. Knock and the door's gonna be open to you. Now I know this is a heavy verse, this is a painful verse. You probably even have coming to mind a moment when an ask was not met. And yet I wonder, as I've been wrestling with this, is it possible that my skepticism is in place because I have not humbly and persistently asked, rather than because God himself is not good. I'm gonna say that again. Is it possible that my skepticism, your skepticism is in place because we have not humbly and persistently asked, rather than because God himself is not good? So I return to the story of my family 
this growing story of criticism, this growing story of cockiness, of kind of these pearls that have been crushed, even, this, if I'm being honest, a, a cynicism, a skepticism that God really had any plan for my family, any desire to see things come aligned. I was outside uh, at my house after uh, some questions had been stirred. My family had come up, and I was really getting ready to almost walk away from all of it. And as I was painting a fence of all things, I heard God speak. God said, John, I want you to fly home, and I want you to sit down one-on-one with every family member, and I want you to talk to them. I want you to first tell them what it is you've been doing wrong in your relationships, and then I want to invite them, I want you to invite them to speak and ask how this relationship could take a step forward. Now, as I felt that invitation, as I stared at that invitation, if I'm being honest, it was absolutely the last thing that I wanted to do. Absolutely the last thing. It was going to cost me money. It's going to cost me time. It's going to cost me a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of anxiety. It was going to cost persistence. It was going to cost me having to lean in and engage conversations that I've been avoiding for the last few years. It was going to cause me, it was going to cost me looking at myself and realizing that I might possibly also be to blame and why things had gone wrong with my family. And as I, yet as I stared at those costs, as I look back now and as I was preparing for this sermon, I just was so struck by the reality that I was being invited to reclaim responsibility, to engage responsibility, to start with myself, to engage the responsibility of myself and to move in to these broken spaces as me, taking that log out of my own eye, protecting my pearls, asking my father who was in heaven to give me the healing that truly deep down I desired. And as I flew out to Arizona, as I engaged these conversations, nothing was solved right away. Some of them were hard. A couple of them even had challenging after effects because we were having honest conversations for the first time. But many of them saw change. And even more than that, as I've looked back on the last nine months, what I've really seen consistently across the whole spectrum of my life is that that decision to reclaim responsibility has spread out in a wide array of other issues, starting simple, starting small, cleaning up my room, that have allowed me to start finding and inviting God to reorder these sort of dissonant and broken areas of my life. I want to ask again, I wonder for you, as you sit with this invitation of engaging criticism, I, I wonder what it is that's heavy on your heart. I wonder how these warnings of Jesus might be speaking to you. To don't get cocky. To don't be crushed and to don't be cynical. But I wonder how you might be invited, even today, for these areas that are so pressing and weighty on your heart, to begin by reclaiming responsibility, by starting small and see what happens, to engage Christ's invitation to reclaim responsibility for yourself, reclaim responsibility for the sacred, and to reclaim responsibility even for your own skepticism. This really leads us to our final two verses. If you look with me at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I wonder how many people you can think of in your life that have truly reclaimed responsibility for themselves. Can you imagine what it would be like if you leaned into this hard, costly invitation from Jesus? Could you imagine the life that is waiting for you, true life in Christ. As I've sat with this narrow gate, 
I can't help but close with a word of comfort for you. That even as we stare into the face of this costly responsibility, the challenge and the weightiness of picking up even our own crosses in following Jesus, I'm encouraged to tell you that Christ himself has walked this narrow road for us and he walks with us now. That even now the ultimate responsibility for our sins was not left to our own devices but was taken by Christ to the cross. That in carrying our sins, Christ invites us, invites us to pick up our responsibility, to pick up our cross with him. To that end, may we continue worshiping and approach the table together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.